I'm Alfonso Mendoza, host of the My Ed Tech Life podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, psst. just want to let you know that this is episode 500. <laughs> That's right. I'm at the 500th episode. That's 500. Oh, numero 500. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is at episode 500. And the time of recording this, there are 622,000 plus downloads. 500 episodes and on my way to 1 million downloads. (laughs) That's cool. I now return you to the 500th episode with no more references to it being the 500th. Thanks for listening to the 500th episode. (laughs) And now, enjoy the show. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And I got to tell you, this is so, so very cool. We are at episode five, zero, zero. (laughs) That's cool. Episode 500. I can't thank you enough because you listening has helped me keep doing it. And uh, this is so cool. I'm at episode 500. I remember when I started doing this podcast and uh, I had like two listeners and then a couple of ex- uh, eventually expanded to a few more downloads. And, and uh, then suddenly here we are. We're at episode 500. <laughs> I love it. Love it. Love it. Thank you so much. And I'm glad you're here today because I've got an amazing episode for you. Today, I'm talking with Ed Davis about his book, The Last Professional. You're going to think this is so cool. This book was born on his journeys while riding the freight cars on the railroads of the U.S. and Canada. What a cool thing. Awesome story. Great read. Great passion and energy that you're going to have from this this talk. Thanks for listening. And by the way, it would be so awesome if you would go to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews and left a review. Could you do that for me? Thanks so much. Enjoy the show. It's the education podcast, your favorite show, with lots of groovy guests and they share what they know. So crank it up the tin and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Milletto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Ah, ah, with Dr. Steve Milletto. Ed Davis began his writing career over 40 years ago, pausing in boxcars, under street lamps, and in hobo jungles to capture the beats and rhythms of the road as he caught freight trains and vagabonded around the Pacific Northwest and Canada. As Ed illustrates in 40 years from boxcar to book launch, the last professional was born on the rails. His short stories have appeared in numerous literary journals. His uh, novella, In All Things, and his collection of travel pieces, Road Stories, have both been Amazon top 10 bestsellers. Ed's death row thriller, A Matter of Time, was written in real time, 24 hours as the last day of the hero's life unfolds. His work has appeared in Gree Gree, New English Review, and the Penman Review, among others. Ed and his wife, Jan, live in Northern California, not far from Jack London's Beauty Ranch. Today, we're focused on his newest book, The Last Professional. Ed, thanks so much for joining me today. Say hi to everyone. Uh, Hi, everybody. Steve, it is an absolute pleasure to be here with you. Well, it's awesome to have you here. And I... Ed, I got to ask you this question because anyone who's going to ride the rails for a while in his life has got to have some interest in trains. So where'd that come from? Probably uh, my parents divorced when I was four. I was born in Kansas City, Missouri, 
and uh, my mom brought me north on a train. And that's my first memory of it. Where she brought us was to Auburn, Washington. Uh, her dad was a colonel in the Army, and he was in charge of the marshalling depot at Auburn. At that time, it was huge. And as it happened, the rail yard backed up to our back fence. So nice. I have memories as a four- and five-year-old standing and watching the trains. I think that's where it started. That's cool. That, that would seem like that would have a huge impact on you if they're right there. So uh, good stuff. I mean, and, and today we're focused on your recent book called The Last Professional. Could you, could you talk about the backstory of The Last Professional and uh, why it took so many years to write it? Sure. There, there, there's about six questions hidden in that statement there. And, and Sorry about I'll that. I'll them off as best I can. Okay. Um, I, in 1972, um, was a 19-year-old kid. I had been working as a psychiatric technician at Sonoma State Hospital, which at that time was the largest hospital for the developmentally delayed in the state. There were about 3,500 residents. A friend of mine, Paul Morrison, and I, we'd been high school friends. Paul worked there with me. Two years was all we could take. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a hard environment for guys who were that young. Paul and I also shared in common that we did not know our fathers. Um, and there's a thread you'll find in a lot of male fiction writers who did not know or have good relationships with their dads. But Paul got a lead that um, his father might be located, or at least a clue to where his father was located, might be found on an island off the coast of Scotland. And so we cashed in all the money we had, which wasn't much. In those days, you could buy a $200 round-trip open-ended ticket from Kennedy to Heathrow. You could use it any time. So that was going to get us to the UK. The question was, how would we get to the UK? It's 1972. We'd hitchhike. Everyone was hitchhiking. That's what you did in those days. I'm six foot. Paul's six foot four. We went to the Army Surplus Store and bought gigantic backpacks and stuffed them full. We stood by the side of the road and put on our thumbs, and no one stopped. Um, we were just too damn big. And finally, somebody took pity on us, a fellow in a van. He gave us a ride, said, you guys are crazy. No one's ever going to give you a ride. Why aren't you riding freight trains? And he might just as easily have said, why aren't you riding magic carpets? It was that far out of our experience. He had done it as a young man himself. He gave us some tips. He dropped us at the railroad yard in Eugene, Oregon. Half an hour later, literally half an hour later, we were on a flat car heading north, wind in our hair, sun in our backs. I was hooked and I never looked back. That's so cool. It really is. Cause there's a whole lot that goes with that too. I mean, it's like, I mean, it, it, first of all, you're riding a freight car, man. This is, oh, yeah. there's a little bit of danger involved there. <laughs> yeah. And this is the point in, in the interview where I have to give my public service announcement. Riding freights is extremely dangerous. It's also illegal. So please, Anyone hearing this, do not try to do this. Um, the statistics about the number of people maimed and killed every year riding freight trains are staggering. So um, if you have, hopefully, if you're hankering for a little to feed your wanderlust, you'll do it by reading my book rather than doing it yourself. Nice. And I, I like that warning there because that uh, that's all I can imagine because, you know, if you're trying to, to ride that thing uh, – you know, I would kind of think that there's uh, um, the, the train uh, company may not be too exactly excited about having you there. 
Absolutely true. The railroad police, known as bulls, are really there to protect railroad equipment and also to keep young fools from killing themselves. Um, in the old days, it was a little more than that. They were pretty protective of the trains, and we'll delve into some history here, but to give you a sense of it, it's estimated that in the Great Depression, a million people were riding the rails. Um, as uh, you and I discussed a little bit before this started, I think if you look back one or certainly two generations in any family that's been in this country that long, there's a hobo there. There's someone who rode the trains out of necessity. So, yeah, the the railroad police don't like you to ride. Um, So it's best to avoid them if possible. There are lots of ways to do that. And if you get caught, it's really best to be uh, humble. Let me put it that gotcha. way. <laughs> not, not a time to get into argument of uh, state, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, excellent. I, so, you know, one of the things I got to do before we, um, I, I just got to ask you this. Because of the way you're writing, do you have any heroes in, that, are in, that are authors or a style that you're kind of, you know, enamored with? That help? Oh, Steinbeck's my North Star. Um, yeah, I... Uh, I, when I, dis, I, I think I discovered Steinbeck in high school, but it didn't click until after I'd hit the road. And it was while traveling that I discovered Kerouac. Um, and an interesting story about that, I, was, I had made it to Scotland. I was working as a kitchen porter in, a, in, the, in the Isle of Mull. Uh, it was in the town of Tobermore in the Isle of Mull. And somebody gave me the Dharma bums. I'd never even heard of Kerouac. And reading it in the second or third chapter, Jack is hitchhiking up Highway 101, where Paul and I had been hitchhiking, and he sleeps under the same bridge Paul and I slept under the first night because we couldn't get a ride. But if if I had to pick out a writer, it would absolutely be Steinbeck. That's awesome. That's really cool. um, Just just a note, I also think it's it's cool that you you live not far from where Jack London was uh, talking uh, about. Yep, I, I go jogging, jogging there every Saturday morning with a friend. It's a beautiful place. If, for those listening, if you haven't had a chance to get there, it's, we're an hour north of San Francisco. It's worth the trip. It's a magnificent spot. That's awesome to hear. That's cool. That's, uh, that's, I just love the Call of the Wild and White yeah. Fang and all those books by him and uh, uh, neat stuff. So uh, awesome. I, so i got to ask you, why should a reader – Take time. Why should a listener, let me try that again. Why why should a listener take time to read The Last Professional? Really good question. One of the reasons I wrote it was in the 10 years, give or take, that I rode freight trains as a part-time hobo. I had the privilege of getting to ride occasionally with a few of the old, old timers, the guys who had been doing it since the days of steam. Um, There are sort of three classifications of people who rode. Hobos worked and wondered, tramps just wondered, and bums didn't either. Um, But among hobos, there was a class of guys, and and some context here, um, hobos primarily were migrant workers, and they used the rails as a way to get from job to job. But there was a small subset of these guys who found themselves on the rails, and so they didn't wander to work, they worked to wander. They were never happy unless they were on the move. And it was clear to me in the late 1970s, early 1980s, that this was a lifestyle that was simply going to vanish. We have contemporary examples. 
if you think of the guys here in California who surf 365 days a year, regardless of the wind or the weather, the guys who hike the Appalachian Trail in the winter and the Pacific Crest Trail in the summer, the guys who summit all the 14 peaks and they do it again and again, there's something that happens with a certain subset of folks who are, they're never more themselves than when they're in this relationship physically that immerses them in their surroundings and in the land. And so I wanted to capture that. And so one of the main characters in my book, a little fellow named the Duke is the last professional hobo or profesh still writing. I love that. Cause that it's, it, you gotta be it, so right. And since you've, you've experienced it, I mean, is you know one of the things we mentioned before we talked about is my my dad used to have these stories because he worked in the roundhouse in Chicago and greased wheels when he was like 18 19 years old and and as a result of that he came in contact with all kinds of people and uh, um they kind of taught him how to ride the and so he he spent some time going back and forth over into different states you know across the state lines and things like yep. this because he had no cares at the time and he had he'd make money out of the roundhouse and then go ride around and you know and it's what and and you think about and that's in the 30, yeah, late 30s, um, early 40s, and, uh, you know, and uh, here we are today. And so you're in, yeah. you're talking about 1970s when you... Exactly. And so it's, it's a, and the link to the past was guys just like your dad. When I started riding, the old timers who were working in the yards, the switchmen and the brakemen and the fellows who did the maintenance, many of them had ridden the trains as hobos as young men um, because they had to. And that was how they got from place to place. So you could approach these guys. And sometimes you'd walk up to a guy in a yard and say, you know, mister, I'm trying to get from Roseville to Reno. Where should I catch a train? And they just chase you out. But more often than not, they'd say, well, you know, kid, this is illegal. You shouldn't be doing it. But if I was you, I'd go around to the other end of the yard and hide behind that tree there. And there should be something coming along about half an hour. Nice. So nice. I, I learned a lot from guys who had done it themselves and had some sympathy for me. That's very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So talk about the timing of releasing this book because you've, one of the things I'm going to ask you about is your, your uh, book tour that you just uh, sure. um, were, were doing. But, you know, one of the things that you talk about is that this is a good time to release this type of book. So can you talk about that just a little bit? Well, I think after the country being locked up for two years, um, something that allows readers to indulge their wanderlust um, it couldn't be better timed. And man, I think the urge to wonder is in our DNA as American. I think that's who we are. And so the response I'm getting from people is that this vicarious freedom uh, that they can enjoy from reading the book is coming at exactly the right time. In terms of why it took so long to write it, um, I'll go back to that first trip. So I got... I got sidetracked, literally, that's where the term comes from, several times. Uh, Paul and I got to Portland, Oregon. We loved this train thing. We got on the first train we could find. It took us to Nampa, Idaho. And we're in Nampa, Idaho, and we asked somebody, hey, we're going to New York. How do we get there? And they said, well, you don't get there this way. You shouldn't be riding across the U.S. this way because there are too many places to get sidetracked. So he said, you should be riding across Canada because Canada only has one set of tracks that run east and west. You can't get lost. So from Nampa, we rode back to Portland, and then we went to Vancouver, and then we went across the country. I was in a new relationship at that time with uh, Jan, who has been my wife now 46 years. And so I had discovered this new way of relating to the country from trains, which is just phenomenal. I mean, it, it, 
If you have never seen the country from a moving train, you need to do that for yourself. You can't do it from a boxcar anymore, but take my word for it. Get on Amtrak and take a trip. There is nothing like it. So this was mesmerizing to me, this new relationship I had with the land. And I had this new passion for this wonderful woman in my life. Every time a train stopped, I would write letters to her. And somehow pulling those two things together with words was like alchemy. And it, it created something new that I knew I wanted more of. And so that's when I understood I needed to be a writer. It was right then. I was so good at it, at least I like to think this, that when I got home from that trip, Jan said, the next time you go, I'm going with you. And so the next summer, she rode all the way across Canada with me and part of the U.S., which was awesome. That's too cool. Because that's because <laughs> first of all, congrats on being married 46 years. That's yeah. awesome in itself. And then, but to also know that she rode the rails with you and did all this stuff and still stayed with you. So that's exactly. <laughs> that's pretty remarkable. That is. That's so cool. Yeah. Uh, with, you know, one of the things like, and by the way, that's that's I just can't imagine what that countryside looked like if you're riding oh. across Canada. Just it's just amazing. Just amazing. And the, the, the thing that's hard to get a handle of is, I mean, trains are the largest rolling machines on the face of the earth. They, some of them are 15,000 feet long. That's three miles long. Wow. And yet they become invisible because if your house backs up to a train or your factory or your town backs up to the railroad grade and the things come day and day and day, pretty soon they're so familiar that you know, you don't notice them anymore. So from a train, particularly from a boxcar, it's like looking out a movie screen door. From a train, you're moving slowly through life, the entire panorama of life, absolutely unfiltered. People pay no attention to the train. So you're seeing it all. Backyards where people are hanging out their wash and having a barbecue and they got the car up on the jacks and you're going through the factory and the guys are yelling at each other and you're going through the middle of downtown. And, you know, high rises everywhere. You see everything in a way that you never would otherwise. And amazing wilderness. Many of the rail routes go places that cars don't go. So it, it, it's mesmerizing, as you can tell. Most definitely. I, and, it, and so you actually bring up something there that i got to make sure I ask. So are you spending most of these, these rides in the freight car or under the freight car or, you know, on the great, back end? Great question. Um, there was a time when most of the cars that were rolling when I was riding were still boxcars. Boxcars were the standard for moving freight. They aren't anymore. So the ideal ride for a hobo was what was called a side door Pullman or a boxcar with an open door because you had shelter. You could stay out of the sight lines of the bowls. You didn't get rained on, yet you could see, which is just essential. Now there are virtually no boxcars. Uh, they're essentially all gone. It's all container freight. The, the last good ride you can get now is on what hobos call a grainer or a bulk grain car. That's a car with the sides are bulging and at either end it tapers. And under those tapers is often a porch, a place where you can sit and tuck out of sight. So you're sort of out of the weather and wind, but you can still see. That's amazing. That's, that's just amazing. And I, and I, you know, now that you say that I do Think about the trains that you sit there and you watch go by, and and uh, so many of them. It's just those those giant uh, um, trailers that are going to be hooked onto a truck eventually or something. That's yeah. almost all of it now. I've been on the rails now for a month. I just got back from this uh, tour, which was almost all done on Amtrak, 
And uh, we were just in Winslow, Arizona on Thursday and Friday. And one of the cool things at the La Posada Hotel in Winslow is it backs up to the freight yard. And so the guests, this is so cool, the guests in this beautiful hotel will go sit in the back lawn, line up the lawn chairs and watch the trains move. But they're virtually all intermodal, which it's called now. So you've got a container that can go on a ship or a truck or a train. We didn't see a boxcar in 30 days. Wow. Wow. Can, since you brought it up, let's, let's go ahead and, and go there. Can you talk about the, I mean, you just did this, the Great American Whistle Stop book tour. And, uh, it, and if you look at a map now, unfortunately, I'm located in Georgia and you didn't come anywhere near us. So <laughs> next time, <laughs> yes, next time you got to make sure that happens. But yeah. the, uh, um, but that is cool what you're doing there and the, the route you took. Can you talk about any great memories you have from uh, the different places you stopped? Because I've seen some pictures oh, and stuff. So many, man. It, it was um, when we, we headed out from Martinez, California, which is here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and there were nine of us total on the first leg over the Sierras to Reno, Nevada. A bunch of friends came, which was great. The first event was at the uh, Nevada State Railroad Museum in Carson City, and some great old hobos showed up, which was fantastic. These were guys who had ridden when I had ridden. I didn't know them, but we knew one another by our ex- experientially. Uh, that was totally awesome. Um, gosh, but the high points, mostly it's the relationships with the people. I met so many great people on this. The flyover states sort of tend to get ignored. And man, the impressions that I have are just indelible of genuine folks with a lot of shared history in terms of, you know, their relationship to their towns, to one another, how, how we were welcomed. I, I, two, two specific things I'll say that the one that the educators, I think, will like a lot. I was in Las Cruces. Um, and hand selling, which is basically you're sitting at a table and you've got lots of books and people are coming in and there was a street fair and it was just wonderful. This grandmother walks up with two grandkids in tow and she says, now girls, this man sitting right here, Mr. Davis is what is called an author. Now I'm going to tell you what an author does. And she stood there for five minutes explaining what an author does and how important they are. That was such a precious moment, man. I mean, just to, those kids are never going to forget that. I am never going to forget that. Um, and, and then it, similarly, but not educationally oriented, in Galesburg, Illinois, which is a tremendous railroad town, 100 trains a day go through Galesburg. We had a huge turnout. People were very receptive. It just felt like home. One old couple, he had worked for the railroads for 50 years. She had fed hobos out her back door. They didn't want to leave. They were enjoying it so much. We were enjoying each other so much. Finally, they had to go home. And she walks up and shakes my hand and says, Ed, now the next time you're in town, you're going to stay with us. I hadn't met these people 90 minutes before. So now that's, that stuff's great. That is, that's awesome. That's, you know, to, to be welcome like that, that's just awesome. I, I think yeah. that's, that's amazing. And, uh, you know, they, they all have an interest, I would imagine, in the trains too, and yeah. uh, whether they work for it or not, and uh, to show out. So it's good stuff. And it, it, like you said about the kids, they'll never forget. Uh, yeah. Part you. of why there is so much interest, and I think a modern audience may not quite be aware of this, is that there was a time when 90% of the population of our country lived within five miles of a train track. That's not true anymore. But if you, you, you think about how it all got started, it's 1865, Civil War is over. 
more people killed, more Americans killed and wounded in that conflict than all others combined that we've been in. These guys come home wounded in mind and body, often to homes that aren't there anymore because they've been destroyed or homes where they no longer recognize themselves in their homes and they don't seem to fit. What's different is the transcontinental railroad had happened. Suddenly, unlike the generation just before them, where you were basically stuck where you were born, these guys could walk half an hour, catch a train, and be anywhere. Trains abolished time and distance. They were as revolutionary in their day as the internet has been in ours. So there is some railroad in everybody's background in this country. And I think that's that's why the interest is there. I, that's so awesome, because I, I think about uh, my own state, uh, just as a note, which you didn't visit. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I can see I'm in trouble. Yes, you're in trouble, man. They get the, uh, but it, I mean, where I am right now, we have plenty of people who the railroad goes through the backyard and, or it goes near them. And you just imagine, you know, those, those towns that still, that train is going through those areas, what it was like when, you know, when it was that uh, that's their mode of transportation or they were, they needed it to get groceries and things like that, to, 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 to make the town happen and stay alive. So, so. Somebody sent me a great map from Atlas Obscura just lately, where it showed in you know the U.S. It showed all the existing rail lines, and then you could hit an overlay, and the overlay showed all the rail lines that no longer exist, and there's only ten percent left of what was once there. So wow. rails connected the country really in a way that they, you know, the highways replaced them. So yeah, pretty interesting. Yeah, fascinating stuff. I I just I, I just it's just a really cool. You know, one of the things that, uh, um, you talk about in, uh, it's in and around your website and stuff like this is that, um, your freight hopping kind of helped you prepare to be a business owner. So can sure. you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, you bet. Um, hobos were America's originals and masters. Um, you gotta be patient you can't push it because the trains are like forces of nature and they're going to move when they're going to move and they're going to stop when they're going to stop. You can want it to be otherwise, but it won't be. So understanding that no matter how you, how hard you want a thing, there are conditions beyond your control and you just got to relax. That's a piece of it. Moreover, I think the notion that among us who were riding, we were all racist colors, creeds, there was no differentiation to be found in the hobo jungle. Um, and I think my favorite example of that happened on a train, but it was a subway train. You know, I was, I was in New York. I didn't have any money and I needed a place to spend the night. So I got a subway token and I got on a subway train and you can just stay all night, you know, as long as you keep moving and aren't sleeping. We were pulling into maybe the Bryant street station. There were half a dozen of us. It was God, it had to be two in the morning in the car a woman clearly coming off of swing shift, very tired, carrying a canvas bag with two handles, moving slow. She must have been her groceries for the day or something. She walks up to the subway car. The door is open. She puts the bag inside. The door's closed. The bag's inside. The woman's on the platform, and the train starts. And she was not going to let go of that bag because it had, what, it had her possessions in it. She's being drugged down the platform. Without any of us saying a word, the half dozen of us who were strangers in that car dove at the door. 
we pried at it, we kicked at it, we did everything we could to get that door open. One of the guys who was smart enough to do the right thing jumped up and hit the emergency stop button, stopped the car and the door opened. The police came, the woman was okay, she went about her distance, she, she went about her business. But what I take away from that is that in that moment, we were not of different political beliefs, of different religious backgrounds, of different colors. We were just humans trying to help somebody who needed a hand. And that's the lesson that I remember most from those days on the road. That's awesome. That's really awesome. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I got to ask you now, so it, when you're writing and you're, you know, when you were riding the rails, were you taking notes or writing at the time when you were doing this or did you just kind of keeping this that, in mind? That started late in my, in my writing years. It was probably 1980 or close to it. And I was uh, coming back from seeing some friends in San Luis Obispo. It was night. Uh, it was cold. I was in a boxcar heading north. I was near Watsonville, California. And I had a notepad with me and a streamliner, a passenger train was coming by and by its headlight, I wrote the first lines of the novel, which was somewhere a hobo is waiting. I wanted to capture this thing that the, a, ho a hobo is waiting because he wants to move. That's, and that's what started the novel. The novel itself wrote, it wrote itself very quickly. Uh, as I said earlier, I figured out when traveling that first year that I wanted to be a writer. Uh, Jan and I, after we got married, we, I was reasonably successful in the work I was doing. So I, I retired as a 28 year old you know, to, under quotes. I mean, we didn't have any money, but I still retired <laughs> to write for a year. And so I wrote the last professional very quickly, got an agent, got publishers interested, wrote another novel, got another agent, got publishers interested, but it never quite clicked. Then we uh, had our first child. And it became clear that I needed to help provide for our family. And so I didn't ever give up writing, but I set it aside and concentrated on business. And thank goodness I, that worked out very well. So in the last half dozen years, I've had a chance to come back to it. I, I feel a little bit like Roy Hobbs from uh, uh, The Natural. I don't know if you know the Bernard Malbert Yes, story. I do. Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, you know, so he starts out as a rookie and then comes back as a 40-year-old. Well, I came back as an almost 65-year-old. But that feels that way. That's cool, though. That's uh, that's interesting the way you put it together because it makes sense. I love the reference too, by the way. That's that's, yeah. that's excellent. The uh, so so let's talk a little bit more about that. Did you did you uh, as you're starting to pin thoughts? Did you decide to? I mean, are you going to um, be an outliner? Are you going to be a pantser? Whatever that you know, you're going to write by the seat of your pants. <laughs> okay, so we're getting to to how the book gets written. Yes. Um, so the first draft almost wrote itself because I had a lot of experience uh, behind me. And I think m much of the best fiction is autobiographical, or at least largely autobiographical. So the main young character, Lyndon, uh, he's like 27 when he returns to the rails. He doesn't know his father. He was abducted by a tramp. Uh, he was abused and then abandoned. Well, I didn't know my father. I wasn't abducted by a tramp, but I was abused and didn't have a dad in my life. So there was a lot of me in that character. Uh, wrote itself very quickly, no outlining. Uh, I, I just went for it, which was great. Um, and I was really happy with it, and I still wish it had found a home. But when it didn't, I put it in a drawer. Um, 
in terms of outlining, I did outline seriously a book that I wrote in 24 hours. I did this God, 10 years ago now. Um, your listeners will be familiar with the, the movement to write a novel in a month, uh, NaNoWriMo, I think it's called. Oh, yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, totally awesome. So I saw this in the paper and said, oh, hey, anybody can write a novel in a month. I'll see if I can do it in a day. And nice. so I laid out what it was going to take and how many words a minute. I'm a fast typist and okay, I can do this. So I, but I knew I had to outline like crazy. And so I had an outline on a big flip chart and I set up a time-lapse camera and I did the whole thing and I got it done. I didn't get to 50,000 words. It's about 30,000 words when it was done. But uh, so that was heavy outlining. But other than that, I tend not to outline. I, I let the story take me. That's very cool. Very cool. So, we, you know, it, there's just so much stuff here that, uh, you know, we got, uh, I mean, because you're, you're living free and fancy and then you're, you're, you're realizing that you need to make this book and you, you learn some lessons about people and the countryside and all of that. I mean, and one of the things I want to make sure I point out is that uh, your, your book is available. The Last Professional is, is available. Uh, um, like you, you say, you could, you could buy it from Amazon, but uh, you have it in small um, independent bookshops too. Do you want to make a comment about that? I absolutely do. It, it's it, Amazon's sort of like the freights. It, it's a force of nature. Um, Amazon sells 60% of the books that are sold now. And it's really hard on the small booksellers. So Amazon doesn't need my, sell, my help to sell books, but the small guys do. That's why I, I structured this book tour to go to as many small and out of the way bookstores as possible. And I encourage people to buy from bookshop.org where a portion of the sale goes to a local bookstore rather than all goes to Amazon, but we'll take a sale wherever we can get it. it as they say on TV available, wherever books are sold. I love that. I love that. But I, I want to make sure I gave you a chance to make that comment about, because Appreciate yeah, I try and shop at independent bookstores and from, time to time. And, uh, and if nothing else, it's really cool. There's kind of well, like the that. best people, man. Yes. I mean, it, I've spent a month with them now and you can just, they just treat you like family when you walk in the door. It, it doesn't get any better. That's so cool. And, and so, you know, one of the things I want to make sure that we mentioned before we uh, go, cause we're getting closer to wrapping up is, is, uh, um, you know, you've, you know, you just referenced that book that you wrote, uh, um, for NaNoWriMo, and uh, you have a free download, and you may have several free downloads on your website. Do you want to mention about it, any of that? You bet. Uh, EdDavisBooks.com, there are actually two things that you can download for free. One is A Matter of Time. It's the death row thriller written in 24 hours, and it's just a quick, fun read. Um, another one that's um, I'm very proud of, and I didn't write it, but I, I revived it, was a little-known short story by Jack London called Told in the Drooling Ward. Um, and it's basically written in the first person as though he were a patient at Sonoma State Hospital where I worked. Uh, one of my other books, uh, In All Things, was about my training year at Sonoma State. And so that's very near and dear to me. But so there are two things that you can download for free on the website. Very cool. And I, I will have those links in the website for people to find as well as to your, your website. Is there any other place you want to uh, people can find you or reach out to you if they wanted to hurt hear more, learn more about The Last Professional or about your life? Uh, well, they can certainly, if anybody who is on Facebook, they can't avoid me. <laughs> you just put in my name and it will come up. And the, and the website's probably a really good place to go. Um, and one of the things I'm, I'm going to not jump ahead, but make sure I get to say here, it, it's I was, I know your audience is largely educators. I was on the school board for eight years. Uh, my wife worked in education her entire career. 
um, it, we understand how vital it is. I am sort of rare in that I never attended college. Uh, I'm a, I have a 12th grade education. And it's an indication that a good, indi- a good education from caring teachers who recognize you for who you are can carry you a long ways. And it doesn't matter how many years it is. It's how good it is. I love that. That is awesome, Ed. I, I, that's, that's so cool. Um, and so that's kind of going to bring me into uh, you know, my last question, which it, it basically is this is just a question I like to ask my, my guests, and it goes like this. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference with you? And if so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? Well, absolutely. His name was Dave Stockton. He was my fifth grade teacher. Uh, I had amblyopia as a kid, so I did not read well. Amblyopia is lazy eye basically. And I could barely read when I got to the fifth grade. Dave was from the Texas Panhandle, and his method of teaching was telling stories. And so he would tell stories that were absolutely engaging, and I would hang on every word. And at some point, he slipped me a book, and he said, you know, there's better stories here. And damned if he didn't get me to read that book. And uh, so I owe my life as a reader to that man who taught me how to read in the fifth grade. That is so cool. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. And, and Ed, it's been great talking with you. Thanks for sharing your book, The Last Professional, with us. I want to remind everybody that uh, you'll have links to it and uh, in the show notes and how to get back in touch with Ed. And uh, you need to check out uh, The Last Professional and learn a little bit about uh, um, some of the stuff that uh, Ed was experiencing as he through his characters and so forth, which is awesome. Uh, thanks for sharing the awesome journey and travels that you experience and wishing you the best in all you do. Steve, this has been nothing but fun. Let's do it again. Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 are those of the guests and host. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.